0: It is lovely to be with you all this morning as we continue in this series looking at gifts and fruit of the Spirit. Now way back in July, Dan kicked us off in this series by telling us that we need the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit to be in harmony with one another. Which I thought was really interesting because we may be tempted to ask ourselves the question... Do we really need the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit? You know, if we've just got the gifts, who doesn't like a gift? But fruit sounds a little bit more like hard work, doesn't it? And so, you know I love a visual. I started to think about what our lives might look like, perhaps when we have the gifts of the Spirit, but we are not showing the fruit of the Spirit. And this is what came into my head. Hopefully a picture will be coming up in a moment. And I started to think about the the differences between the two. Thank you very much. So, the picture on the left is what I imagine our lives might look like spiritually if we have the gifts but no fruit. So, we've got something there, but there's no growth, there's no progress, there's no vitality. And the picture on the right is what I imagine a life where we have the gifts and the fruit in harmony together looks like. And there we see a plant that is flourishing and thriving, has deep roots, and can nourish others. And this is what A fruit-filled life, a spirit-filled life can look like. We know that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given and not earned, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that they are given for the common good. We serve a generous God who gives good gifts to his children, and when we invite Jesus into our lives, the Holy Spirit comes and fills us. And I like to think of the gifts of the Spirit as maybe the seeds, the root, the trunk of the tree of our lives. They show us that something has been imparted, something has been deposited on the inside of us. And with the Holy Spirit, we have everything we need to grow the fruit of the Spirit. But it won't happen automatically, and it won't necessarily be maintained unless we seek to develop that fruit in the seasons of our lives. Now, anyone who knows more about gardening than me, so probably everybody in this room, will know that if, for example, you have a fruit tree in the garden, there are some years where you have an incredible yield, and other years it might just be in the ones and twos. And perhaps life can feel like that as a believer. Some seasons just feel more fruitful than others. But Jesus tells us that if we remain in him, we will bear much fruit, and it will be fruit that will last So there's one man that I want us to think about in the Bible today as we look at why we need the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit to be in harmony, why simply being gifted with the Spirit might not always be enough. And that person is Saul, son of Kish, the first king of Israel. Now, Saul's story takes place in 1 Samuel from chapter 9 onwards and makes for both devastating and fascinating reading. At the time that we meet Saul, Israel is in a bit of a mess. They're not really one nation, more a loose grouping of 12 tribes with no clear leader. And their their main enemies, the Philistines, have turned Saul's hometown into an outpost. They're having an absolute field day. And Samuel, the prophet, the young boy who once said, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, is still listening, and for a while has been the go-to guy for wisdom and understanding for the people of Israel. But they looked around at all the other nations around them, And they wanted what everybody else had, which I can certainly identify with. Even though they knew that God had called them to be distinctive, that they belonged to him, to be set apart, that he was really their king and their ruler. All the other nations around them had a king, and that's what they wanted too. And so God gave them what they asked for. So we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 9, and I'm just going to read a few bits for us. So it starts off, there was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zerah, the son of Becharath son of Aphibah of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father Kish were lost, and Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area surrounding Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on to the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they still did not find them. When they reached the district of Zeph, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us which way to take. And then jumping to verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people." And then in chapter 10, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy, and you'll be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds you to do, for God is with you. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. So far, so good. Saul is filled with the Spirit and is prophesying with the best of them. But unfortunately, it didn't stay that way. By chapter 13, about a year into Saul's reign, the Philistines are continuing to cause havoc. And Samuel has given Saul very specific instructions on what to do in the battle, including waiting for the seven days for him to come and offer a priestly sacrifice. In a moment of panic as the seven days pass, Saul, unable to hold his nerve, neither priest nor prophet decides to offer the sacrifice himself. He's disobedient, and Samuel gives him a bit of feedback on that failure, which doesn't go down well. And we read in verse 11 of chapter 13, "'What have you done?' asked Samuel. "'Saul replied, "'When I saw that the men were scattering "'and that you did not come at the set time "'and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, "'I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me "'at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favour, "'so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. "'You've done a foolish thing,' Samuel said." You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command." And this failure rocked Saul's sense of self, which seems to be a recurring theme. And as he's met with the news that his kingdom is not going to endure, we see a king gripped by fear. And in fact, several times throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we read of Saul being afraid of losing control in chapter 13, of other people in chapter 14, of his reputation being tarnished in chapter 15, and even of David when he came on the scene in chapter 18. Now, undoubtedly, Saul was filled with the Spirit, but we don't see him seeking to stay close to God. And at times, it seems that he's actually avoiding spending time with God. In the middle of the battle in chapter 14, he's unsure of which way to turn, and the priest encourages him to inquire of the Lord. Saul prays and hears absolutely nothing, and then becomes frustrated that he's not heard from God. How often we can forget to stay close to God until the going gets tough. Saul was someone who was filled with the Spirit and displayed the gift of the Spirit, but his life and his reign became fruitless. And in chapter 15, we read these words, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. So what went wrong for Saul? You know, It strikes me in reading his story that he was just not living a life in which he stayed close to God, And he made his decisions based on fear, pride, wanting to please others, and wanting to make a name for himself. His relationship with God is not seen growing. We don't see him spending that time with God. And while he has the gifts of the Spirit, while the gifts of the Spirit are often displayed in public, the fruit of the Spirit is so often developed in private, isn't it, in our personal relationship with God, and then outworked in the world around us. And we need both. And the balance of gifts and fruit is so beautifully demonstrated, of course, in the life of Jesus, who in such contrast to Saul, is constantly seen taking time away from everybody else to spend time with the Father and says that he only does what he hears the Father telling him to do. Jesus demonstrated to us what a spirit-filled life can look like in his interactions with all those around him. So while gifts are attractive and desirable and we should desire them, God is looking at our heart, because our heart shows what we've been building upon and what we've been investing in. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in 1 Samuel 16, as Samuel comes to anoint King David, we read that when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, David's big brother, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So what about our hearts? is our heart set on developing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. It's a tall order if only there could have been some easier fruit in there to grow like apathy or passive aggression or complaining. But the the truth is that we cannot grow this fruit by ourselves. We have to remain in Jesus. John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me and you will bear much fruit. We can't go it alone. If we're ever feeling like we know that the Holy Spirit is on the inside of us, but we are struggling to be kind, we feel that we're impatient, we have no self-control, maybe it's because we're not remaining in him. Because whether we've been a Christian for one day or a hundred years, at no point do we graduate from needing to stay connected to Jesus. Without him, we will not be able to live this fruit-filled life. So we need to know him first. And these fruit are the characteristics of a holy God. We need to know the God that we serve. We need to stay close to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will give us everything we need to cultivate this fruit in our lives. So what can we learn from this tragic story of Saul that can protect us from being people who are Ooh, I've lost my paper. Rob, it might be time to close the door. (laughs) I don't know where I am. (laughs) Here we go. Uh, That can protect us from being people who are gifted with the spirit but lacking in the fruit of the spirit. How could Saul's story have looked different? It strikes me that as we read Saul's story, his life gets smaller and smaller and smaller as he tries to do it alone. Jesus says in John 10.10 that the thief comes to kill, to steal and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. A fruit-filled life is an abundant life. And I want to suggest three things from this story that characterize a fruit-filled life. And the first is this, that fruit protects against fear. My encouragement to you is to know that you are loved. Saul started to act out of fear because he was not leaning into that relationship with God. And so he felt this incredible amount of pressure. In 1 Samuel 15:24, it says, "Then Saul said to Samuel, "I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and instructions. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them." Saul became afraid of everyone and everything around him. Fear fueled his kingship. But he was lacking fruit, because Galatians 5:22 tells us that the fruit of the spirit is love this is love today <laughs> and 1 john 4:18 tells us that there is no fear in love for perfect love casts out all fear this fruit of love growing and being nurtured in our lives can protect us from a situation where we become overwhelmed with fear And I love what Paul writes in Ephesians 3, 17. He says, And I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God, and to know that love that surpasses all understanding, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. A fruit-filled life is an abundant life, and we have access to an abundance of love in our Heavenly Father. If we remain in this love, rooted and grounded, which is great language when we're talking about fruit, then fear will not have a place. We won't have to react out of fear. See, Saul was not cultivating an understanding of the love of his Heavenly Father, and so he began to act out of fear and pressure. Panic drove his decision-making and it started to affect his whole life. Can this happen to us as well? The key to this fruit is to spend time getting rooted and grounded in this most basic and yet most incredibly profound principle that God is love. It's only by the Holy Spirit and his power at work in us that we can begin to get a measure of this love for ourselves, which will in turn transform our hearts and our lives. Those who are rooted can gain power to understand this love, this perfect love, and fear will not have a place. Maybe some of us this morning in this season that we are in need to remind ourselves of this perfect love of God, this fear-crushing love of God, and to know that love which we cannot understand in our human thinking. We need to read and accept God's word and what it says to us about his love for us. We need to familiarize ourselves again with the person of Jesus and the various ways in which his life, death, and resurrection demonstrate his love for us. And maybe we need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the love of God to us in our day-to-day lives. Because I think God's love can look like so many things in our lives if we're seeking to know his love. Maybe it's a word of encouragement from somebody when you were going through a tough time and nobody knew about it. Maybe it's an act of kindness out of the blue. Maybe it's protection at a time when you needed it the most. God demonstrates his love to us in a myriad of ways. Read his word, accept his love, and then tell others about the love of God in your life because sharing that love with others reminds us of the truth of God's love for us. This is how we grow in love. And rooting ourselves in this love will allow us to be transformed into people who are no longer slaves to fear. This is what Saul was missing. Are you rooted and grounded in the love of God this morning, the perfect love that casts out all fear? We were on holiday a couple of weeks ago in Cromer, and so we spent a lot of time by the beach, and there was one particularly sunny, windy afternoon, and the waves were just getting bigger and bigger. The kids were just jumping over and over them. And um, it was lovely, actually, just to be in the water and to watch these waves keep coming. And as I was standing there, I was reminded of the words of a song from quite a few years ago now called You Make Me Brave, which has the line, as your love in wave after wave Crashes over me. And as I watched the waves come over and over and over, it was such a powerful demonstration of God's love for me. And it made me think of these words in Psalm 36 Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Immerse yourself either for the first time or the thousandth time in this incredible love. Let it wash over you and take root in your heart. Let it transform your mind and your thinking. The only way that we can overflow in this fruit of love is by first knowing that God loved us, and that is how we can cultivate love for others. If you are facing situations or decisions that cause fear to rise up on the inside of you, this morning I want to remind you of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. With that incredible love, what do we have to fear? Fruit protects against fear. Secondly, fruit brings perspective on failure. Failure doesn't define us. By 1 Samuel 18, David has defeated Goliath and is officially on Team Saul. He's built up an incredible friendship with Saul's son Jonathan, and he's also proving to be a very successful warrior. In fact, in 1 Samuel 18, 5, we read that whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. Now, unfortunately for Saul, this caused the women of the town to turn their hands to songwriting, celebrating that Saul had slain thousands and David tens of thousands. Suddenly, somebody else was coming up and being more successful, and we see this sense of failure again in Saul, and it does not sit well with him. We later hear him described as being tormented. We see that this failure rocked his sense of self, and his actions become erratic there is a whole bizarre chapter about him trying to marry off his daughters to David. And so we see that he is lacking some fruit because Galatians 5.22 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is peace. Here we go. So we've heard a lot about peace in this series, and I wonder if God might be trying to tell us something. This word, peace, in the Hebrew, shalom, in the Greek, irene, denotes a sense of completeness and wholeness that comes from a relationship with God, and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It describes a sense of spiritual well-being, assuredness, and contentment. Because I think the trouble is that failure of any kind can make us feel like we can lose that sense of wholeness, that completeness. Whether it's a failed relationship, a failure in our job, a personal failure, a moral failure, feeling like we've messed up, feeling like we've failed others, maybe even that God has failed us. I certainly know in my life, if I'm being completely honest, that failure of any kind can make me feel less whole, less complete, less shalom. That's why we need the Holy Spirit and we need to cultivate this fruit of peace. Because when failure seeks to erode our sense of wholeness, this fruit will give us a different perspective. Romans 8, 6 says that the sense and the reason of the flesh is death, but the mindset controlled by the Spirit finds life and peace. A fruit-filled life is an abundant life, and there, we have access to an abundance of peace in the Holy Spirit. Romans 15:13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you might overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit want to give you a little example and take you back to my university days. So uh, in October of my final year at uni, I sat and failed my driving test. A bit disappointing, but I booked it again and six weeks later I was back at the test centre. My instructor said to me, let's hope it's not the same examiner, eh, Phoebes? Well, famous last words. Who did we see walking towards us but the same steely-eyed examiner? tried to put the previous test to the back of my mind, and uh, we went ahead and I passed the test. Now, you know how it is when they tell you you've passed your driving test. You're not listening to anything else they say because you're too busy imagining yourself driving down the motorway with a carload of your friends, listening to your favorite tunes, or at least I was anyway. But I was brought back from this fantasy motorway land by the examiner saying to me, you know, I remember you from your previous test. He said, uh, I was really struck by the way you handled the news that you'd failed your driving test. Your calm reaction really stuck with me. My first thought was, what does everybody else do when they find out they've failed their driving test? <laughs> Still don't know the answer to that. But he wouldn't let it go. He kept asking me. So he wanted to talk about what I was studying, what my plan was beyond that. Even We even got to talking about church and faith. And as I was talking to this examiner, it struck me that perhaps what he'd seen in me was something that had been developing for a while. You see, two and a half years before that driving test was the day of my long-awaited A-level results. And I know we've just come out of exam results season. And from a very young age, I had had my heart set on becoming a doctor. As I grew older, there were people in my church and in my family who gave me lots of encouragement, words of encouragement even, that seemed to suggest that this might be what God had for me. And more than that, in my personal relationship with God through my teenage years, I also became more convinced that this might be what God would have for me to do. And so I began to gear everything up towards this. My options choices, my work experience, A-level subjects, in the conviction that this would be what God was asking me to do. Then A-level results day came. And I missed the grade that I needed for biology by a margin. And for me to stand here and say I was disappointed just does not cut it. It felt like the bottom had fallen out of the floor beneath me. I felt the hugest sense of failure. And what I struggled with the most was that I had been so sure that this might be what God wanted me to do. So was I wrong? Had I not heard him correctly? And more time-pressed, what was I going to do next? My sense of wholeness was hugely under threat in that moment. But I had a choice to make. I decided to go to the same union I was planning to and do a science degree, and I had to decide was I going to remain with him or was I going to go my own way? And I chose to remain. And God gave me some incredible people around me in those years at university. I got stuck into a fantastic Christian union and met some friends for life. And I joined a fantastic church in Stoke. And these people helped me to remain in him. And through that period of time, the fruit of peace began to grow in my life. I realized that I had to have peace with God about the situation, but also peace in God, knowing that he held my future and that it was far bigger than any degree program, that he could use me wherever I was. And a little bit of patience also started to grow, although that was the harder one. Maybe it was going to happen. Maybe it was just going to come about in a different way, and I just had to wait a little bit longer. Interestingly enough, the day after that conversation with the driving examiner, I received a letter to say that I had a place for the following year on a graduate medicine degree program at Nottingham Medical School, and the rest, as they say, is history. But in those two and a half years between those devastating A-level results and this driving test, the fruit of the spirit had been growing in my life, thanks to the people around me, helping to bring perspective to my failure so that when other failures came, they were met with a bit of peace. Now, I would love to say that I have continued on on a peaceful trajectory for the rest of my life, but I am a work in progress like the rest of us. But it did remind me about how so often this fruit is demonstrated in situations we just wouldn't choose to find ourselves in. But if we can cultivate joy and peace and patience through the failures of life, the smaller failures, they will be in place, ready to grow, and bring peace in other failures of life. And so we don't have to lose that sense of wholeness and completeness and assuredness in Jesus. The God of hope can indeed fill us and keep on filling us with all joy and peace as we trust him through failure. And finally, fruit keeps us focused on the future. Don't give up. In 1 Chronicles 10, verse 13, we read that Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance. You know, I do feel for our friend Saul as his journey of kingship continued because he became so caught up in himself that he was not able to be faithful to the assignment that God had given him. He was not able to see the bigger, longer-term picture and just commit wholeheartedly to serving God. He was lacking in fruit, because Galatians 5.22 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. Here we go. This is what you can get on Amazon, by the way, if you're interested. <laughs> when we have an understanding of who God is at his very core, we will desire to grow the fruit of faithfulness. We will want to be faithful to him and to the people that he's placed around us and to what he's asking us to do. And as with all these fruit, the way we develop this faithfulness is by first understanding that God is eternally faithful to us and allowing that truth to take root in our life. He is faithful, he has been faithful, and he forever will be. And he calls us to a life of commitment to him and to the great commission that he has given us. And he has given us everything we need to live this life, everything we need for life and godliness. We need to be faithful in tending to the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't think our faithfulness to God is demonstrated in a perfect walk with Him. Of course, it can't be. For me, I think it's more about a heart and a mindset that is determined to follow Him despite all obstacles. I read this amazing quote that says, God is eternally reliable, steadfast, and unwavering because faithfulness is one of His inherent attributes. God does not have to work at being faithful. He is faithful. Faithfulness is an essential part of who he is. And in Deuteronomy 7, 9, we read, so realize that the Lord your God is the true God, the faithful God who keeps covenant faithfully with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. A fruit-filled life is an abundant life, and we stay close to a God who is abundantly faithful to us. What does that mean for us in our day-to-day lives? Well, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4. We do this because we are convinced that he who raised Jesus will raise us up with him, and together we will all be brought into his presence. Yes, all things work for your enrichment so that more of God's marvelous grace will spread to more and more people, resulting in an even greater increase of praise to God, bringing him even more glory. So no wonder we don't give up. For even though our outer person gradually wears out, our inner being is renewed every single day. We view our slight, short-lived troubles in the light of eternity. We see our difficulties as the substance that produces for us an eternal, weighty glory far beyond all comparison because we don't focus our attention on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but the unseen realm is eternal." When we are convinced that God is eternally reliable, steadfast and unwavering, then we can be in a position where we say with Paul, no wonder we don't give up. We can fix our eyes on what is not yet seen. We can focus on what has not yet happened. We can view our current situation through the lens of eternity, aware of the future glory, is being achieved for us in the midst of what Paul calls our slight and short-lived or light and momentary troubles. Now we know that Paul, of course, had more than his fair share of troubles in this life. But writing to Timothy from prison, he says in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. With that level of confidence, we can also say, God is faithful and I have decided to be faithful to him. The current situation may look bleak, but I stay faithful. People may not understand my decision-making processes, but I stay faithful. I cultivate faithfulness. I fix my eyes on what is unseen because what I can see in front of me right now is only part of the story. And what is unseen is what will last. So I stay faithful. I do the things that I don't always feel like doing. I tell my soul to praise the Lord and I stay faithful because I know that as I stay close to him, he promises to stay close to me. And that is how we grow in faithfulness to God and to what he's called us to, because we know that we can never be more committed to him than he is to us, and because we know that one day we are going to see his face, and we want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Fruit keeps us focused on the future. What we see in front of us is not the end of the story, so no wonder we don't give up we stay faithful. So what can a fruit-filled life look like for us as believers? Yes, we love the gifts of the Spirit and we steward them carefully, but we also need to commit to developing our relationship with Jesus and growing in the fruit of the Spirit, because a fruit-filled life is an abundant life. Fruit protects against fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Immerse yourself in this incredible, fear-crushing love of God. Let that take root in your life so that you can be free from slavery to fear. Fruit brings perspective on failure. When things go wrong, when disappointments come, when failure seeks to erode our sense of wholeness, the God of hope can indeed fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in him. Keep on trusting in him. Keep on leaning on him. Allow that fruit of peace to grow and to uh, protect you from losing that sense of assuredness and completeness in Jesus. And fruit keeps us focused on the future. God doesn't do faithfulness. He is faithful. Because of this, we don't give up. We can fix our eyes on what is not yet seen. We can view the worst of circumstances through the lens of eternity, and we can await with anticipation our well-done, good and faithful servant. A fruit-filled life is indeed an abundant life.